Good afternoon from the KLX studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, folates and the Kuiper Belt. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Susan Huff, who will talk about the life and times of Charles Richter. Also, you'll find out what the Laffer Curve is. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of cough syrup. Not vitamins? Uh, well, vitamins are actually better, so you don't have to take the cough syrup. So how often do you take them? Never. <laughs> I just, well, I get them naturally in the food, so how Okay, about that? you just soak it up in the ether, right? Yes. One of the uh, nutrients that we need is uh, folates, a form of folic acid. Mm. For a long time, the industry has been trying to put this into our foods, either as a supplement or fortification in grains. But one of the concerns is, do we actually absorb the necessary nutrients and are the concentrations too high or not? trouble with some of these additive supplements is you need to be able to bring it into the body. Right. And I think it's also very important for pregnant women because it's very important in development, right? Right, because if you don't have enough, your child could have some sort of birth defect, particularly with the spine, spina bifida. Right. And some geneticists have been creating these tomatoes that would overproduce folates by up to 25 times their regular level. Wow. And so far, it looks like these tomatoes are pretty safe. They haven't become killer or anything. (laughs) The way they did that was they took two transgenic strains, crossed them, and each of them were able to produce the precursor to folates, namely pteridine and P-aminobenzoate. As a result of crossing these two already genetically modified strains, these tomatoes produce 25 times the amount of a regular non-modified tomato. Okay, but do they think then that that folate in the tomato is able to get into the system then? Presumably because this now comes in a much more natural form, in the form of food that we can digest, Mm -hmm. that having that one tomato may be enough to provide for your daily folate intake. What if you hate tomatoes? Then they can work either on other grains or sweet potatoes. Oh, excellent. This was carried out by Andrew Hansen at the Horticultural Science Department at University of Florida, and it was published in our very favorite journal. I look forward to that journal every week. It's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. Well, I wonder if that folate can help you stop colliding with things. Be a little more mentally alert. <laughs> there's any hope for me. Maybe there's help for the objects in the Kuiper belt. Why not? Let's give them some vitamins, other supplements. Uh, I think they need a good dose of sunlight being out there so far. Researchers have been observing a number of very interesting Kuiper belt objects. One of the largest is Eris, which you may recall just recently was given dwarf planet status. Okay. But an interesting object called 2003 EL61, uh-huh. catchy name, they found this object with two smaller objects orbiting around it. It appears to be a little denser than some of the other objects, suggesting that it might have lost its icy mantle, okay. perhaps through a very large impact collision, really? which basically scattered off its icy mantle and produced these two moons. Okay. Uh, but researchers for quite some time weren't able to prove this or have any evidence for it, it just seemed conjecture. But now a group led by Michael Brown from Caltech has discovered some fragments which may support this theory. Wow, so this means we'll have to have better understand how objects in space get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's very fascinating. 
fascinating because they found a number of smaller objects in a similar orbit, which were mainly water vapor, so ice crystals, okay. suggesting that these also might be fragments shot off in this collision, right. which produced this EL-61 asteroid and its two moons. Mm-hmm. So again, they say the finding is very unexpected because they don't expect these collisions to occur that often. They're saying it probably has implications for the formation of the universe, as a lot of these impacts might have occurred in an area what they call... Green zone? It's kind of like the green zone. It's a, the scattered disk, which is a large distant population of ice dwarves whose orbits were strongly perturbed by Neptune's gravity. Okay. It was so fascinating, it was published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Susan Huff will join us to talk about the life and times of Charles Richter. So stay tuned. to the Grox Science Show. Well, whenever an earthquake hits, you hear his name. Charles Richter, inventor of the Richter scale. His name is one of the few that is instantly recognizable outside scientific circles. But unlike Einstein or even John Nash, few know about the man behind the name. Well, joins today to discuss the life of Charles Richter is Dr. Susan Huff. Dr. Huff is a seismologist at the United States Geological Survey in Pasadena, California. She's authored and served as editor for many scientific journals and penned four books, the latest of which is Richter's Scale, Measure of an Earthquake, Measure of a Man. Dr. Huff, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. That's great to be here. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. What is actually the Richter Scale? Well, in short, it's the first way that anyone came up with to size up earthquakes to give you a number that reflects the overall size of a given event. It's not a mechanical device that that confusion persists to this day. It's really just a mathematical formula where you read off the maximum height of a wiggle on a seismogram and from a number of different stations, and you feed it into this formula that Richter came up with, and it spits out a, a single number. Had uh, no one actually ever tried to quantify earthquakes before, Richter? Essentially, no. And you, you have to remember that seismologists really only invented seismometers in the very late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And then it took until about 1906 before anyone really understood what an earthquake was. If you look at the early studies, people were speculating about underground volcanoes or electrical disturbances. And so they weren't even sure what they were dealing with, kind of the nature of the beast. So then around the 1906 earthquake, people started to understand that earthquakes happened on faults and to get recordings. And then sort of the next natural question was, well, how do you size them up? And Richter came along at that right time. For the scale he came up with, there was really quite a bit of insight 
so there's a, a number of ways he could have gone about it, but he sort of tuned the scale to give us the numbers that we know and love. You, When I say magnitude three, we all know what that means, but that number doesn't have any physical meaning attached to it. It's just the meaning that Richter bestowed on it back in 1935, that that's what he, he tuned the scale so that three was a small shock and eight was a big shock like 1906. And so there's a lot of ways that one could size up earthquakes, but what he came up with was enduring, I think, because so much insight went into it. Because big earthquakes are so much bigger than small earthquakes that if they employed this technique called logarithm, which is this scary mathematical concept, but all it does is collapse a big range of numbers or sizes down to a, a range that's more manageable. So then you have this fact that I think people do know that when you go up one magnitude unit, you're talking about a factor of 30 in energy. So have there ever been improvements on Richter's measure? Almost from the time he published it, people were realizing that this was a very useful formulation, but that there were ways that it could be improved. And originally, it was just developed for earthquakes in Southern California, so you had to extend it to make it applicable to earthquakes worldwide. Then it was learned pretty quickly that it didn't give an accurate estimate of the biggest earthquake sizes, and there were other sorts of extensions. A lot of them had to do with the early seismometers that Richter was using, refer to them as kind of tone deaf in their ability to really record the full range of waves that earthquakes generate. So there have been refinements starting from the beginning and continuing through the late 20th century. So Dr. Richter spent a good portion of his life down in Pasadena at Caltech, and uh, I understand he left a lot of his personal artifacts and pages at Caltech. So how did you become aware of these and start to research his life? It sort of started with an idle thought that it was weird that he's so well-known. I mean, there's really iconic global name recognition for Richter scale, and yet nothing, almost nothing's ever been known or written about the man. And even in seismology circles, he's been sort of enigmatic. And I've heard bits and pieces of lore that kind of suggest that he might have been a bit of a kook. And I was curious about this and thinking, you know, maybe there was a story to be written. And I was also thinking that maybe there wasn't enough information to write the story because he had no children. It wasn't clear you could put a life story together. And then I was poking around and discovered that he left his papers to the Caltech archives, which happens to be almost right across the street from my office. So I just made an appointment and wandered over to see what he had left there by way of, of material and papers and discovered he had left quite a lot. He left a lot of obviously professional correspondence, quite a complete set of papers, but also quite a bit of personal papers, and that's where one gets into a, a very interesting and complicated life story. Um, he left journals from his student days, which were punctuated by essentially a nervous breakdown. He left letters, some to women, diaries, just, oh, oh poetry, stacks and stacks of poetry. And I had heard that he dabbled in poetry that was sort of known among seismologists. But in fact, you learn pretty quickly that it was a serious, lifelong avocation for him. There's, there's quite a bit of that in the archives. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you can give us a brief history of uh, Charles Richter, his entry into seismology. Yeah, he went to Stanford and got a degree in physics, and then he had this breakdown, and he spent a year talking to a psychiatrist. He started writing poetry, getting himself together, at right around the time that Caltech was really first founded as a, a leading scientific institution. And so he was aware of Caltech. Robert Milliken was leading 
the institute. And so he enrolled in the grad school program in physics in the early 1920s. He received one of the earliest PhDs that Caltech awarded in physics in 1927. And he had every intention of pursuing a career in modern atomic physics. He was very excited about that. He had a very strong background in mathematics and, and physics. And then he was looking around for employment. And one of my conclusions is that he was a textbook case of Asperger's syndrome, that he really had difficulty with social interactions and dealing with transitions. And you know, there's a syndrome that we recognize today that wasn't recognized during his lifetime, essentially. And so he sort of didn't have the wherewithal to kind of head out in the world and you know, follow a career path. He was hanging around Pasadena looking for a job and a the Seismolab had just gotten started around the same time. They were interested in finding an assistant who had a background in math and physics. So the head of the Seismolab went to the head of Caltech and the head of Caltech came to Charles Richter. So essentially seismology came to him and he took the job figuring it was something to do. He, he was interested in staying in Pasadena and he figured it would be something to, to keep him busy until a suitable job came along. Uh, but yet he remained there uh, for the course of his career. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the poignant aspects of the story. As late as the late 1940s, you know, 15 years after he developed the Richter scale and he was already getting to be known in the field, he was still writing that he had this wish or yearning that he could get back to the more fundamental science for which he had been trained. So he really was a reluctant seismologist from the start and remained one for quite a while. A number of features you talk about in his book is his relationship with the various women in his life. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that you find very quickly in the papers is there were women, not just one. He was married to one woman from 1927 until her death in 1970. It turns out to have been a complicated relationship. And she was an interesting person in her own right. She was ahead of her day in her independence and her ambitions, uh, very much not the traditional woman behind the great man that you had at, at that time. So she was an interesting character, but there's, I'm hesitating, there's some evidence that they both essentially had other women in their lives and that he wrote that they had made a decision at some point to carry on their relationship in their own way and in the face of criticism. I mean, it was a very respectful and very enduring union, but it, they sort of ran into these complications and found a way to deal with them within the confines of societal pressures at the time. Uh, do you think those aspects of his personality that you attribute to Asperger's perhaps led to him sticking in this relationship? Yeah, I, you know, another person might have just ended the relationship or, you know, made other decisions, and he sort of didn't have the wherewithal to handle transitions, and that may have been a part of it. A part of it, I think, was a sense of responsibility. You know, the people didn't get casually divorced at that point. It's hard to know. He had some comments that he made on it himself, but it's hard to know. Uh, one of the other interesting things you mentioned in this book, that uh, he was sort of a renowned nudist. Yes, and this was actually known, it was one of the few tidbits that was known in seismological circles. This was mentioned in the Los Angeles Times obituary after he died, and it was viewed with a fair amount of unease in academic circles that, you know, was sort of unseemly. And it's kind of quaint to look back and to think that this was ever kind of viewed as scandalous because the kind of scandals that hit the airwaves nowadays are inappropriate email messages with underage 
assistance and that kind of thing. Being a nudist is really pretty tame stuff compared to what we're familiar with nowadays. But in the middle of the 20th century, there was unease about it. It turns out it was an interesting, it was one of many interesting facets of his life story that the nudist movement and his involvement, which started around 1935, really provided the meaningful social fabric Hmm. of his life. Earlier you mentioned his lifelong interest in poetry. Did it influence that in any way? It was all sort of intertwined. He had a very strong affinity for the backcountry, and he sort of found sanctuary, getting away from society and away from people. And to some extent, the nudism was part of that. There were people around, obviously, but it was these camps that were in the wilderness. And he used to go out and write poetry in the backcountry and probably in the nude. But it was all tied together, I think. So, uh, from all your research, uh, what picture of a man do you have, then, in looking at Charles Richter? What kind of person was he? What kind of scientist was he? Complicated is the first word that comes to mind. Brilliant. And I think that hadn't been recognized in the seismological community. I think there was a tendency to kind of denigrate his accomplishments over time, and there's various reasons for that. But I really, reading through his papers, I was struck repeatedly by the amount of real deep insight he had into scientific questions. And there's a rare breed of scientist that's able to understand things that they don't have a right to understand, because maybe the field hasn't progressed to the point where you can really nail down a, a certain theory or a certain answer. But there's some scientists that just have the vision and the intuition to get it. And he was like that. He was incredibly careful. And I think this may have been sort of part of the Asperger's package that the stuff he wrote 30, 40, 50 years ago, a lot of science seismology that was written 50 years ago, you'd look at now and, you know, just wouldn't hold up at all. And the stuff that he wrote that he put in writing has held up remarkably well. And that's a testament to his acumen and his degree of rigor. So as a scientist, I ended up with, I didn't know sort of when I went in what to make of this guy. And I ended up with an awful lot of respect because the lore I had heard was if Richter's name was mentioned in the very next breath, people would go on to say that his longtime collaborator was, of course, had the more accomplished career as a scientist. And so and some people went as far as saying that Richter was really little more than Bino Gutenberg's assistant. And that was as much as I had heard. And so it was surprising to me to find out how much real insight he had. As far as the personal story goes, there were a few surprises along the way as well. Do you know any people still at uh, the USGS who interacted with him uh, on a daily basis, and what did they have to say about him? There's quite a few people who were around when, when Richter was here and who knew him as former students, and but also some colleagues at Caltech, and it was invaluable for me to talk to them and to get their recollections. They provided a lot of lore and stories and color. It was striking to me to find out how little they really knew of his personal life, and that was one of the surprises, was that he really had a compartmentalized life where the social fabric and his life as a poet and as a nudist was very separate from his life as a scientist and even his closest colleagues hadn't really ever gotten to know him as a person. If uh, people could take away one particular aspect of Richter's life from all this, what would you have them think about the man? 
gosh. I mean, I see him as just a guy who's worth getting to know, mm. and that's a plug for my book. But you know, <laughs> it really is a compelling life story to look back at what he went through and his struggles to understand himself. And he's an observational scientist who was trying to understand his own mind and never really succeeded. So it's a poignant story in a lot of ways, but as a life story, it's interesting and compelling. Well, I certainly hope the listeners will take an interest and uh, take a look at his life story. The new book, of course, is Richter's Scale, Measure of an Earthquake, Measure of a Man. Dr. Huff, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you. And you were just listening to Dr. Susan Huff discussing the life and times of Charles Richter. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 plus the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. back and ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Richter's Scale. So for the falling five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if they were an earthquake, how would they rate on the Richter scale? Dr. Hoffa, you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Okay. Okay, here we go. Number one is Apple CEO Steve Jobs. Eight. Now, I don't know where this is going, so I, it's hard to calibrate, but eight, just for major impact on society, and high numbers are a good thing, right? right? Which is not the same for earthquakes, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, well, number two, then, Don Imus. Don Imus. <laughs> three. Well, in the scheme of things, it, it ought to be three, but it's probably, in reality, more than that. Well, I think, I mean, the impact of what he did was... <laughs> okay. Uh, well, number three, then, is the famed Caltech physicist Richard Feynman. Eight, two. Rating people, it's apples and oranges. <laughs> right. Eight seems good. Okay. Uh, number four is Paris Hilton. <laughs> two. <laughs> For him and I miss, it's like what the impact should be. Does it really matter what these people are doing or saying? Really, not really. Yeah, it's really not for Paris, I think. <laughs> okay, and number five, finally, is the President of the United States, George Bush. I refuse to answer on the grounds that it may incriminate me as a <laughs> USGS employee. Okay. <laughs> you can guess. Okay. Dr. Huff, I do want to thank you for sticking around and uh, playing our game. Okay. And, of course, talking about the life of Charles Richter. Thank you again. All right, thank you. It was our pleasure. Okay, and Tokyo Kid with uh, the answer to last week's uh, question of the week. The laugh curve is uh, no laughing matter. It's curves that shows how to maximize the revenue for the government from their tax. So it turns out just because the rate of tax is high does not mean you have maximum revenue. In fact, at a certain point it maximizes and then the overall revenue goes down. We do not understand the feedback, but maybe this cause some people to cheat or some other funny stuff. And that's why surprise-side economists like to use the Rafa curve to lower the tax. Whoa, dude, like, I'm feeling like I'm up in the air, man, like I'm not very dense. It's kind of weird, like water does that too, like when it freezes and becomes ice, it's like, no, it's dense, man, it's just like floating on water, dude. So why is it so light and floaty? If you know the answer, you email us here at groxathotmail.com. You're not going to win anything. You just might be floating on water. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lane. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Thank you.